0: Hello, welcome to London Property Alliance's podcast series. I'm Joseph Booth, Communications Executive at the Alliance, and I'll be your host for today's session. Today, we'll be discussing London's vibrant LGBTQ plus venues, the role and purpose that they play for the community, as well as the Mayor of London's LGBTQ plus venues charter and the different ways that the built environment sector, from planning down to development, can help support, protect, and celebrate LGBTQ plus spaces in central London. Such spaces play a key role in supporting the welfare and mental well-being of people that identify as LGBTQ+. During the COVID-19 pandemic, when such spaces were closed, feelings of loneliness amongst LGBTQ+ people more than doubled, with 56% of the community experiencing loneliness very often or every day. Meanwhile, research by the UCL Urban Lab found that 62% of LGBTQ+ venues in London closed between 2006 and 2017. There is a key opportunity for central London's built environment sector to support and develop LGBT people's spaces as we look to the future. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by London's Nightstar, Amy LeMay. As London's first Nightstar, Amy is responsible for ensuring London thrives as a 24-hour city, championing the capital's nighttime economy and working in partnership with the public and private sectors. Amy has a long and successful track record as a leader and collaborator in the cultural and creative industries. She's co-founder of the Olivier Award-winning arts company and Club Night Ducky, and co-founded RVT Future, a voluntary LGBT plus community group campaigning to preserve the iconic Royal Vauxhall Tavern. We're launching this podcast alongside London Property Alliance's Diversifying Real Estate Sexuality Guidebook, commissioned by the CPI and WPA Next Gen Committees, a series of guides aims to inspire and inform CPI and WPA members so that together we can make our profession more representative of London's diverse communities. The guidebook launched during Pride Month provides best practice examples, signposts to resources and reflects on personal experiences. Amy, thank you for joining us today. And to start things off, happy Pride Month.
1: Oh, thanks, Joseph. Happy Pride Month to you. And congratulations on publishing the guidebook. I think this is really groundbreaking, so interesting um, and hopefully will prove to be a valuable resource uh, for people within our community and beyond working in property.
0: Thanks Amy, that's what we're hoping for. To kick things off, are you able to tell our listeners about the wider importance of LGBTQ plus venues for London's community, both those who identify as LGBTQ plus and those who do not?
1: Well, firstly, I think it's important to recognize that the pandemic has been just such an incredibly challenging time for LGBTQ plus venues across the capital, most of them not being able to operate for most of the past year, um, and some longer than that. These venues are at the very heart of life for many Londoners, and they play such a crucial role in offering support and a safe space for our community. They provide employment for thousands of Londoners and support an ecosystem of talent that includes performers and DJs, promoters. It's absolutely crucial that we support them. And we've been doing all that we can at City Hall uh, to help them, which is why the mayor launched his Culture at Risk Business Support Fund, of which £225,000 was allocated specifically to support LGBTQ plus venues. Uh, And I'm really proud to say that every venue that did apply for funding did get some grant. Um, funding, which is really positive. Um, We also launched our Pay It Forward London scheme, so Londoners can help LGBTQ plus businesses by buying goods and services in advance. Uh, We also radically expanded our Culture at Risk office to offer help and support because you know, overnight, just about everything became culture at risk. To put this in perspective, uh, the three years before the pandemic, we had dealt with just maybe a couple of hundred cases uh, of culture at risk in London. And in the past 18 months, we've dealt with almost 800 culture at risk cases. Uh, So it shows just the gravity of the situation at the moment. We know that a lot of them are still struggling. um, And we know that lots of LGBTQ plus venues have not been able to access government grants because of their rateable value. Um, And that's why the mayor and I have been lobbying the government to step up, do more, Put in a proper support package for these venues until they're able to operate viably, because we know just how important they are, not just to our community, but also to London as a whole. Our diversity is our strength in London, and they're they're an essential part of that diversity. And if we lose our LGBTQ plus venues, we lose the very soul of London.
0: Thank you, Amy. That's really interesting insights that you've gave there. And I think it's particularly interesting how you say these venues play such a crucial role, not only just in supporting the ecosystem of talent, but also as being part of the capital's soul. And as I mentioned in my introduction, we know that 62% of LGBTQ plus venues closed between 2006 and 2017. When Sadiq Khan is elected as mayor in 2016, and part of his cultural infrastructure plan, he introduced an LGBTQ plus venues charter to protect such venues. Are you able to give us an overview of the charter and what the mayor and yourself wish to achieve with it?
1: Sure, Joseph. Well, Firstly, I'd like to just address the issue around the loss of venues because that uh, research that was done by University College London Urban Lab has proven so insightful and important to the work that we've been able to do as a result to try and stem that flow of closures. There are loads of reasons why venues have been struggling, uh, including rising rents, business rates, and threats of development. um, And the pandemic has just exacerbated all of that. Um, and when you're right, when uh, Sadiq was elected in 2016, uh, he pledged to do all he could to protect capital's uh, LGBTQ plus nightlife after that 62% decline um, in just a space of 10 years. Numbers have stabilized um, in the few years before the pandemic. Uh, That was because we put a lot of resource into the Culture at Risk office. We set up a Culture at Risk office. Uh, We focused on the most at-risk venues, which include LGBTQ plus venues. They are the most at-risk of all the at-risk. And we also introduced the most pro-nightlife London plan that the capital has ever seen. Um, And... This, combined with the World First uh, Culture at Risk office and creating the Venues Charter, has kind of set up a direction of travel for where we're going and what we value. Um, So the Venues Charter is a practical tool for developers for venues and for pub companies to sign up to and show their commitment to the lgbtq plus community in london so originally it was set up for developers because developers were often interested in how they could diversify their developments but many weren't from the community and they were afraid of getting it wrong or they were maybe a bit reticent that they would be stepping on people's toes or saying, you know what uh, you know, where, where do I stand in, in in all of this? You know, what right do I have to, to put in an LGBTQ plus venue? And I just say, well, you've got every right in the world go ahead and do it. We can help you, you know, and making an LGBTQ plus space doesn't mean just like putting up a, a poster of RuPaul. It's like, you know, it's, it goes much deeper than that. And so the guidance is is light touch, um, but it, it's, it's really meant as a kind of starting point for conversations and how to make it happen. So there's a five-point pledge, uh, and that includes what does you know establishing what an LGBTQ plus venue looks like. So it should have a visible, inclusive rainbow flag displayed on the outside of the venue. It should be marketed as an LGBTQ plus venue. The venue should provide a welcoming, accessible and safe environment, management and staff should be LGBTQ plus friendly. And that programming, if there is any kind of entertainment, that it should be LGBTQ plus focused. So this means that it sets it apart from say, you know, your average neighborhood pub that might once a month host a gay bingo night or something. And those venues that are maybe taking more of a risk of programming of sort of you know, specific community programming. And that's what sets uh, an LGBTQ plus venue apart. And those are the kinds of venues that we want to encourage because we know the, the social and the economic value of those venues is so important to London and to Londoners.
0: That's great. Thanks, Amy. As you mentioned, one of the five pledges of the LGBTQ plus venue charter is to ensure that the venue provides a welcoming, accessible and safe environment. If we think about intersectionality, what can we do to ensure that London's LGBTQ plus venues are inclusive and safe for all members of the community?
1: You know, we know that this is a journey. I mean, you know, we're closely with different communities within our community. You know, and, and for some people just sort of sticking a rainbow flag on it and calling it queer won't really cut the mustard. <laughs> so we need we need to dig deeper into this and say, right, is your building, is your development adhering to accessibility and regulations for disabled people? Is it, uh, you know, does the space adapt to daytime use, nighttime use? Um, Can it be, for example, a cafe during the day and maybe turn into a bar in the evening so that it's more inclusive and welcoming to those that, maybe, you know, aren't so keen on drinking alcohol or don't drink it for a variety of reasons. Um, And we certainly know within our community,
0: you know, we have
1: issues around alcohol um, and substance misuse. So, you know, it's important to offer a variety of types of spaces. Uh, This isn't a cookie cutter exercise saying, this is what a gay bar looks like. This is saying, let's be inventive, you know, The Property Alliance is working with some of the most uh, talented, inventive and creative people in the property sector. Surely, you know, the industry can come up with innovative ideas of how to reach out to the community and meet their needs. Mm -hmm. And as as a result, you know, that that makes London a much more vibrant place. It makes it safer. Uh, It makes it more prosperous in an economic and a social uh, way. So my challenge is really to people that are listening to this podcast to get your thinking caps on, you know, get your rainbow thinking caps on and say, you know, what what could we possibly achieve together? Because, you know, we we certainly have a lot of advice and support that, you know, at, at City Hall that can be accessed. And, and we'd welcome an open conversation about how we could do that together.
0: That's great. I mean, I love this idea of having all of the sector pull together with their rainbow thinking caps on and really creating <laughs> the spaces that London's LGBTQ people need. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you speak as well about the economic value of the community and these spaces. And I know that recently the mayor announced a £5.7 million loan for Tonic Housing's UK's first LGBTQ plus retirement complex. Now, the pink pound, for those who are listening who don't know what that is, it's the term coined for the purchasing power of the community, is estimated to be around £6 billion per year in the UK alone. Do you think that developers would be more likely to include LGBT people's spaces in their developments if more was known about the financial benefits the community can bring to an area?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question, Joseph. You know, some people... They're really just interested in the bottom line. Uh <laughs> and, you know, if we can show that we are an economic force, uh, which we are, um, then should be an you know sort of part of the picture. Yeah. It shouldn't always necessarily be the whole picture, but I think that there's there's a balance to be had here about the economic and the social value. Uh, And so if some people only look at the bottom line, then that bottom line is there. If some people are more interested in the social aspect, then that is definitely there because we know the social benefits of LGBTQ plus venues. It's been interesting that there's a growing interest in retirement homes aimed specifically at LGBTQ plus communities. Uh, And a recent national survey found that lots of older people in care homes felt scared that they couldn't be open about being part of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, So in March, the GLA loaned Tonic Housing, which is an LGBTQ plus housing organization, loaned them 5.7 million to purchase and refurbish 19 units within uh, the bank house development very appropriately in Vauxhall, which is a little hub of LGBTQ plus activity. Uh, So, um, you know, I think they won't have to go far for their day trips out. Um, But I think this is so interesting because Bank House is already home to retirement apartments. So work began immediately. The first residents are set to move in by the end of the summer. They've been absolutely inundated with interest. There are more than 400 people on the waiting list. And I think that this really demonstrates that there's a huge demand for developments of this kind. And I'm incredibly proud that Sadiq has supported Tonic in creating this retirement community. I mean, London is an open, diverse, inclusive city, and these plans coming to fruition just proves that. And, you know, older Londoners deserve to be able to enjoy their later years in comfort, in security, and enjoying the diversity of our city Uh, and being surrounded by a a supportive community. And so I, I look forward to seeing this realized at Bank House and when my time comes, I'll be putting my name down on that list. It'll probably be many thousands long by then, but hey. <laughs> you know, I I think that this is the first of you know what I hope to be an exciting development in development.
0: I think you've got a good few years to wait even before you can put your name down for that list. But I'll be joining you with you when the time's <laughs> right. <laughs> No, it's really, it's really a valid point that you make about the balance needing to be had and looking at the bottom line, or actually more about the social value of what you're bringing to an area. And I think we are making steps in the right direction, um, which is great. Now, you've played a really fundamental role in campaigns to protect historic LGBT plus venues in London. Are you able to tell our members a little bit more about the ways that you think the property and planning sectors can adapt to support, protect, and celebrate LGBTQ spaces in central London?
1: Yeah, well, I, I was closely involved uh, with the campaign to ensure the redevelopment of the Joiners Arms included a protected LGBTQ venue. This was a groundbreaking case. Um I brought together the community group the developers and the local authority uh, and our planning team at City Hall to ensure that the development Included an LGBTQ plus space, and that this was part of their Section 106 agreement, which is the first time that Section 106 has ever been used specifically for an LGBTQ plus space. We've also been able to negotiate meanwhile use space uh, for the community. Uh, That has unfortunately been put on hold because of the pandemic, but we've been working on it behind the scenes. So hopefully, that uh, meanwhile use space will be up and running as soon as uh, it's safe to do so. But, you know, it's interesting because both the developer and the and the local authority realized that LGBTQ plus venues contribute so much to our economy. They generate stronger, more resilient communities, and they are absolutely vital for people's freedom of expression. Uh, so going back to that ecosystem of talent, as well as employment. It makes sense. It just makes sense. It's kind of, you know, nothing more radical than that. Um, It's crucial that we absolutely support and protect them. And I would love for developers to start thinking about how they can incorporate LGBTQ plus spaces into their plans. And if you are looking at a development uh, or a space that means that an LGBTQ plus space has to be pull down or, you know, heaven (laughs) forbid, that uh, you consider this at the early earliest possible moment uh, and that you engage and have a conversation with us uh, and me uh, and you know we've put in planning protections into the London plan for cultural and nighttime spaces. We want to make sure that those are adhered to um, and doing everything that we can to make sure we don't lose those spaces that we lost those those precious community spaces. you know we've we've got a responsibility. Uh, to future generations in London. And that is what our focus is.
0: No, Amy, that's absolutely great. And as you said, it's about having those meaningful conversations and that real deep down engagement from the start with communities. And as a sector, we do have a responsibility. We're creating the spaces for these people. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Amy. There's clearly a step in the right direction being made by yourselves at City Hall. And as well, I think in the more wider built environment sector as well, and people are now seeing this as a real serious issue. So thank you, Amy.
1: Thank you so much, Joseph. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and look forward to what all of the listeners come up with uh, once they put their rainbow thinking caps on. <laughs> I'll check in with you in a couple of months and see how that's going.
0: Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again, Amy. Thanks.